Uh, good morning, GBC. Man, it is, uh, it's been a week, hasn't it? A real, real difficult week. Um, today was supposed to be the day that we began walking through our new vision series for why we exist, why we're here as a church, what we're all about. And um, just in light of everything going on this week, uh, who would have thought that last Sunday when we dismissed from this place that we would have faced the things that we're facing this week. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of challenges that we're facing. And uh, because I think it's really important that we engage um, in that vision series, uh, just really wanted to postpone that at least for a week. Um, but really, as um, we're looking around the world, I'm thinking, Lord, what is it that you want to say to us? And felt really clearly uh, that God kind of placed Psalm 62 in my lap uh, last Friday. And so um, this is a psalm that I want us to look at this morning. Because really, guys, during times of hardship and grief, uh, when we walk through stressful things and uncertainty, we all long for comfort. And uh, there is nothing more comforting, especially in times like these, than the Bible and God's Word. So uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to Psalm 62. I want us to swim in Psalm 62 this morning, and I want us to swim in it long enough to where we get a little pruny. Uh, we get pruny with God's purposes for how we face and walk through crisis. Uh, so let's read this together, and then uh, I'm going to pray for us again. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray uh, that you would reveal yourself to us, God, that you would breathe life on us, God, that you would strengthen us as your people during this time, uh, that you would call us back to you, uh, that you would show us what it is that you're wanting to show us, help us to see that. God, help us to believe what it is that you're calling us to believe and to open our hands to that which you're calling us to open our hands to. God, I pray right now that, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, through your word, God, and uh, that you would shape us into the people that you're desiring to create here in East County. We pray you glorify yourself today and that you would do so even in this time that we have now together. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Uh, in Psalm 62, we encounter a man, uh, David to be exact, 
And we find David penning this psalm while he's under immense pressure. He, he isn't writing this song after the fact. We need to be clear on that, right? But he's writing this song from the vantage point of being in the midst of intense hardship, and he doesn't know what the outcome will be. So, let me ask you, where do you look to when you are feeling out of control? When you are aware of how you are not God, right? When, when you face hardship and you're not sure how it's going to turn out, who, who, who is it that you trust, right? Let me put it in the present tense. Who are you trusting right now? Well, what are you finding refuge in? Who are you pouring your heart out to? We find in Psalm 62 that we have this jaw-dropping invitation to trust in God, to actually pour out our heart before Him and to experience Him as our refuge. Today, like, like right now, today, right? Not after the fact, not after the rain comes, not after the smoke clears, not after school starts finally, not after our lives get back to the way that we want them to be, but today and then tomorrow, and then the next day. So here's what we see in our psalm in terms of what it is that God calls us to do in the midst of crisis. Uh, in the first four verses, we see this call to actually wait for the Lord. Verses 1 through 4 show us to wait for the Lord. Verses 5 through 8 show us to trust in the Lord. Verses 5 through 8 tell us to trust in the Lord. And then verses 9 through 12 are calling us to return to the Lord. 9 through 12 is calling us to return to the Lord. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 and how we're called to wait for the Lord. What does it say? It says again in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. David says, for God alone, alone, my soul waits in silence. This concept of waiting in silence is that there seems to be no reply to the situation that he is in. There's no response. But the waiting in silence is communicating that David is ready and he's available for the answer whenever God reveals it. So what is David waiting for? Well, he's waiting to be saved, isn't he? Right? There is some situation that he is in that he feels hopeless, that he feels helpless to get through on his own, and his circumstances aren't changing. Okay? I wonder if you've ever felt like you were waiting on God, that you were praying for something, you were asking Him to do something, and yet it seemed like it was just sheer silence that you're being met with, but you're waiting on Him. I feel like that's a massive thing that God has been doing and teaching me in my own life in 2020, honestly. Well, why would David wait for God alone to save him? Why would he wait for God? Why would he not run to something else to save him? Why would he wait for God? Well, he tells you why in verse 2. God is my rock. He is the steady and sturdy ground beneath my feet. He is my fortress. 
which a fortress is a, a high tower. It's, it's so high up that an enemy could not reach it, okay? It might even often be on a cliff to where an enemy could not reach that cliff. It's, it's sort of the image uh, as if you were to see this wall of water come flooding towards you and your life is in imminent danger and you see this high place that you could get to and you get to that high place and as the water rushes by you, you're experiencing the chaos of the moment, yet you are untouched by the water. You can see it, but that water is not able to affect you any longer. That, that's the image of a fortress. There's, there's chaos, there's the enemy around you, but you are safe. You're safe. Guys, this is who God is to David. Is this who you know God to be in your own life? Right? He, he might be waiting, but he's waiting in true security. And this is why David could say, I shall not be greatly shaken. Well, what's the situation he's going through? Well, we don't know the specifics of it, which is actually pretty amazing that God's Word often does this. So God's people from generations on then would sing this psalm and they'd be able to apply it in so many situations that they're in. Right? We don't know the specifics of the situation, but we know that David's not out of the woods yet. We see that in verse 3, that he's being attacked. His life is in jeopardy. He's feeling weak. He's not feeling strong. Notice that it says in verse 3, that he's like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. This is, this is painting a picture of a structure that is so weak and that whatever it is that this person is facing, in this case David, all it might take is just one final little push and everything's going to come crumbling down. Like you've seen a fence that needs to be replaced, right? You've seen a wall that's leaning. It just looks like if I just gave it one last little push, the whole thing's going to come crumbling down. It's an image of weakness, Right? Do you feel like you've been there? You're leaning or tottering, and all it might take is just one more little push, and your world's like, I'm done. The world's collapsing. Maybe the fires this week felt like that. They felt like that little last push. We, we learn in verse 4 that in David's situation, there are people who are seeking him out in his weakness. They're wanting to actually take him out. They're, they're wanting to bring him down from his high position he says, and these people, they don't desire truth. They instead use their words to flatter other people in order to get what they want in life, but inwardly, they're cursing. That's what David said. So here, he's on the, the brink of being overcome by enemies, like real, in his situation, other nation, warlike enemies, most likely, but he's fighting. He, he's weak, but he's fighting. How is he fighting? Well, he's waiting on God because he knows who God is. I'm wondering, what are you paying attention to in life right now? What's, what's consuming your mind? I've been asking that with myself lately. I think consuming is a, is a good word. I mean, even when we think of the fires that we're experiencing around us, we, we see fire, and that's a great image for what it looks like to consume something, right? We, it's something that's filling. It's something that's saturating. What is it that's filling your silence? What is it that's filling your soul in the waiting, in your longing for salvation? Corey Tenboom, who survived the Holocaust and concentration camps and went through horrible things during World War II, a strong believer in the faith, has impacted many Christians. And one thing that she said that came out of the midst of her suffering that she went through is she said, let God's promises shine on your problems. Let God's promises shine on your problems. 
fill the silence with God's promises. That's what we see David doing here, right? Oftentimes when we're in situations where we're in crisis or we're met with difficulty, have you ever been in those places where you feel frustrated and paralyzed? You're like, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I don't know what the next step is. It's a frustrating place to be. I mean, maybe a petty little example is I experience this often with my three-year-old. She's uh, very feisty, as many of you know, and uh, there's many days where she's in a really bad mood, and for some reason in her bad mood, she wants to cling on to me and be really, you know, tightly hug me, and, but she won't tell me what she wants, and so I'll be like, okay, do you want this thing? And she'll like kind of kick and squirm and get mad and just shake her head no, and I'm like, okay, well, do you want this? And she just gets mad and kicks and does this thing again, and I'm sitting there getting so frustrated because I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what you want. I wish you would just tell me, right? Those are frustrating situations where we're supposed to be doing something, but we don't know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, right? Crisis often feels like that on a much, obviously, much larger scale, isn't it? Whereas right now, if you're anything like me, you might be a little paralyzed, a little frustrated, wondering what to do. In David's life, this crisis is an ending in this moment. As David's writing this, his crisis isn't over, but he waits. He knows I need to wait. And I need to wait knowing that God is the ground beneath my feet. That's something we need to do. But the next movement tells us to trust in the Lord, right? Look in verses 5 through 8. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. In verse 4, it was really right for David to kind of call out his, you know, these people that are oppressing him, that are his enemies, right? He, he, it, it's good for him to cry out for God to save him. But here things shift a little bit, and David begins to f- leave that behind and to fill his mind, to fill his thoughts with thoughts of God. Right? Notice the repeated words here that we saw in verses 1 through 2, right? Verses 5 through 6 are, are very familiar to us already. Right? But notice the subtle shift. In verse 1, the psalmist says that his soul waits in silence. It's a stated fact. It's a reality. But here, he's calling his soul to wait. Right? It's almost like he's slipped from that place, and he's like, no soul, wait. Wait again. He's calling himself back. And he says that his hope is from God. Right? Hoping in something means that things aren't the way that we want them to be currently, right? If you hope in something, that means you're not experiencing the thing that you're hoping for, right? Hope is a preferred future, a desired reality that's up ahead. And for David and for us, God is meant to be the hopes that we set our gaze upon through the, the windshield of our life. David repeats who he knows God to be here. Right? He's my rock, my salvation, my fortress. But then this moves from a personal prayer to like this corporate invitation. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is not just a personal struggle. This is not just a personal experience. This is something the psalmist wants to share and invite all people into. He looks outward, and he invites others into this refuge that he has found. Guys, here's the amazing thing about verse 8. What, what God has been 
to David, God can be to you. Now, do you see that? What God has been for David, God can be for you. Think about that. And in finding this refuge, in inviting others in, David has found that what he has found in this crisis actually applies to every single thing that you ever go through, every crisis, every great experience, no matter what it is, no matter what experience you could have in life, this applies to, to every situation, every single one of them. This is the emphasis of the psalm, trust in God at all times. Trust Him every single time. Who? Who should do that? Everybody. Well, that would be you and me, right? right? If you are a person, the invitation is for you to trust God, right? Well, when should I trust God? At all times, like even now, right? Well, what about when, when fires are driving me out of my house? Let's trust God, okay? What about when school and life rhythms aren't ideal and they're burdensome? Yeah, let's trust Him. Let's trust Him. Right? What about when I can't play sports and that's the thing that I, like, live for? Let's trust Him. Right? What about when I'm sick or a loved one uh, of mine is sick? Let's trust Him then, too. Right? What about when everything is going great and life is exactly how I want it to be? Let's trust Him. Let's trust Him. What about when life seems way outside of my control? I'm being filled with panic and anxiety. What do I do? Let's trust in God. Ray Ortland says, sometimes there's no way to get out of suffering. But there is a way to get through suffering because God is the ally of sufferers. Trust in God, not an explanation from God. That is the pathway through suffering. Trust in God, not an explanation from God. That is the pathway through suffering. Right? That is the pathway, right? The pathway through suffering is not to get out of it. It's to trust God through it. Well, how do we begin to do that, like today? Well, the, the second part of verse 8 really helps us begin to walk towards that. What does it say? Pour out your heart before him. Right, this is one of the most helpful guiding sentences in this psalm. Right, this is so like the psalms here. Pour out your heart, you guys. Right, your desires, your emotions, all that's in your mind, your conscience. Right, pour it out. Give it to him. Tell him about it. Is that, is that a safe thing to do? Can I actually do that with God? Oh, yes. Why? Because what does it say? God is a refuge for us. The word refuge means someone or something that you turn to for security. So I can pour out my heart to God, give him everything that I'm thinking, everything I'm processing, uh, all my emotions, all my thoughts, my conscience, everything, because God is, is a safe place, right? He is a place of security for me. Look at what we do in the midst of crisis. We already saw that we wait on the Lord in silence, all the while pouring out our heart before him. These feel like two different things, but they're really the same. I expectantly wait filling my mind with who God is, and I'm pouring out my heart to God, right? What a, what a good God that we have. Trust in Him, right? Trust in Him. C.S. Lewis said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say that you believe a rope to be strong, as long as you are merely using it to decorate a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice, 
wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? He wrote that challenging thought in his book, A Grief Observed. We get this idea that something feels trustworthy until the magnitude of that moment really hits us. I think a great example in history is in the late 1800s, there was a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. Um, uh, and he was famous for, for walking on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. Uh, he did all these amazing, amazing things that, I mean, I wouldn't even walk on a tightrope if it was six inches above the ground, right? I couldn't even do that. So, but this guy, he walked across a tightrope over Niagara Falls blindfolded. Uh, he pushed a wheelbarrow with 200 pounds in it across, right? He walked across with his manager on his back. He walked and he sat down at one point midway on the tightrope and he cooked an omelet and ate it. And then another time he took a chair out to the middle and stood on it, not with four legs obviously, not with even two, with one leg of the chair on the thing. This guy was amazing and people would just flock out there and watch him and they're like, Charles Blondin is, is so great at this, okay? People said there's no one like this guy and the story goes that one time during one of these incredible feats, he walks over to the crowd with his wheelbarrow and he says, you just saw me do that. Do you think that I could take a human being across this tightrope? And everybody said, yes, you know, of course. And he says, are you sure? And they all said, yes, of course. And he goes, all right, who wants to get in? And it was just silence. No one. But it was one thing to have this intellectual assent that Charles Blondin could do this. It was a whole other thing to trust him and to get into the wheelbarrow. I think we often treat God like Charles Blondin, someone who does things for us or entertains us to a degree. He's a, he's a means to an end. It feels safe to say things about God that we've been told are true and that we say are true. But there are days that come, days like this, where God is saying, let's get in the wheelbarrow. And we're like, oh, I don't know. In times of suffering and crisis, we learn that God is not a means to an end. He's the end. Our trusting is exposed. When we face crisis, we are asked to get in the wheelbarrow. So we wait, we trust, and finally David wants us to see that there is an invitation, there is a call, a needed sobering reality to face that we need to return to the Lord. So verses 9 to 12 is showing us, look at what it says those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. We're told here that those who are seemingly insignificant in life, they're of low estate, right? They're weak. We are told they are but a breath, which is the same word uh, that you see in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's translated vanity. But then you also see that those who seem really significant, those who are great, those who are of high estate, those who are strong, we're told those people are a delusion. It's a pretty vivid word. It's something that seems real, but it's it's a facade, right? It's, it's fake. But here's where this idea of glory comes in that we saw in verse 7 when David says, on God rests my glory. 
right? We have this word here that says, in the balances they go up. Right? We are presented here a picture of a scale or a weight that has all of humanity on it. That's the same word here, this, this idea of balance is the same concept of the word glory, because glory in Hebrew is doxa. It means weightiness as one of its primary interpretations. What, what does David get his weightiness from in verse 7? Do you see it? He gets his weightiness from God. He says, God is my glory. He is my weight, right? He's my honor. That's what we see in verse 7. This is what gives you your weight. This is what the idea of glory is. What, what gives you that weight? What gives you your reputation? What gives you your sense of importance? This is talking about that place of, of high honor, right? Let me ask you, what, it, what is a successful life to you? Uh, trust me, I'm not switching gears. I'm not bouncing on a different topic here. This is all tied up. What is a successful life to you? If you were to close your eyes and you were to picture a successful life, what do you see? Is it the classic answers of reputation? Is it, is it having wealth to the degree that you can kind of have what you want, do what you want, be at ease? Is it having lots of friends? Is it having a big family, a loving family, a healthy family? But based upon my own life experience, right, a lot of what I would view as a successful life is having a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life where I just, just feeling good, right? That's success. But if you want to know what you think a successful life is and you're struggling to get to the heart of it, you can ask yourself two questions that could really be asked from verse 7. Ask yourself, what is it that I think will save me? What will save me, right? For David, God on God rests his salvation. What do you think will save you? What is it that you think you need that will get you going in the right direction. Right? And then secondly, what do you look for for glory, for your glory? What do you look to for your glory? Right? When we're talking about living a successful life, we're talking about glory, aren't we? Right? When we're thinking of what is good, what's most important to us, what gives us our weight, right? what is it that we grab a hold of and we put in front of ourselves and we put in front of the world and we say, see this, do you see this? I'm something, I'm significant, right? This gives me my value, this gives me my weight. Well, what's David holding up? He's holding up God. But what is the weightiness of our self-achieved identity in the world? It's nothing, verse 9 says. It, it's lighter than a breath. No matter how great people think you are and you think you are, no matter how low and humble you think you are, right? It's a breath, all of it. I mean, have you ever stood in front of a scale and tried to blow on it? Right? Has it registered any weight? Right? That's, that'd be pretty hard to do unless you're like an X-Men or Marvel hero or something, I'm guessing, right? Like you're going to blow on a scale and it's not even going to register, right? That, that's the image here, right? But not only is that the image, that's the issue. That's the issue. We have a wrong view of ourselves. Right? And here's the thing, we are a breath and we think we are weighty. But in the end, when it's weighed, it doesn't even register on the scale. Whether you had a lowly estate or a high position, what's weighty to the psalmist, he gets his glory from God. Not from his high position that he's afraid of being knocked off of, and not even from a low position if that's where he ends up. 
His glory is gifted to him from God. You are designed by God to receive your glory, your weightiness from him, not through position, not through wealth, not in anything of yourself. That's why it says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, if life gets better, if life ends up getting to the place where I really want it to be, set not your heart on that. God is painting a picture of how humanity thinks of itself as so powerful and so great, but it's a delusion. Aren't times like these a wake-up call to our delusions of how in control we are? Right? Who has the power? Who really has the power? Verse 11 tells you, right? Power belongs to God. Says it belongs to Him. He is the rightful owner of power. It's His. That, that, that's a really comforting thought. Or it's very frightening. It kind of depends on how he wants to use his power, doesn't it? Well, that's where it's comforting. It's comforting to those who know verse 12's line, that something else belongs to God as well, something else that he is the rightful owner of. What does it say? It says steadfast love, doesn't it? That's covenant love, meaning God will never stop loving his people. At neither height nor depth nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present that you're facing, nor things to come. There is nothing else in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are in a covenant relationship with God that was sealed and purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That God loves us, that love belongs to Him, and so does all power. Isn't this beautiful? I mean, the way the world uses power is for its own benefit, right? But the way God uses its power, His power is for your benefit. Why do I say that? Well, what is love? Well, true God-like love always has another person as the recipient. This is how God uses His power. But although this might be comforting, this, this is also kind of a bit frightening, isn't it? Because look at the last line. We find a warning in the midst of our chaos and delusion. God will render to a man according to his work. You guys, this is not just a matter of perspective. This is a matter of eternity. It says in verse 12 that justice is coming. God is going to render a man according to his work. What work? It's the way I've treated other people. It's the way that I've listened to and trusted in and obeyed God or the ways that I've sought to give lip service to God and do life on my own, doing life for myself. It's being assessed, did I, did I use people or did I benefit people? Did I, did I oppress other people? Did I bless other people? Guys, right, so here's the good news though, because two millennia ago, God rendered to Jesus not according to his work, but according to your work and my work. Power belonged to him, and how did he use it? He used it to benefit you. He took his power and assumed a position of oppression and weakness and endured the shame of the cross so that when you and I 
feel shame today for all the ways that we've taken our life into our own hands when we, in our delusion, find ourselves in other things weightier than God, when we, could, we can find forgiveness and we can receive a new heart that starts moving us in a whole different direction this morning. Jesus was in the highest position, but willingly took the lowest position. He, was, he took the position of the leaning wall, right? The tottering fence position. Right? He wasn't just cursed inwardly, but cursed outwardly. People were afraid of losing their influential position to Jesus as this new otherworldly kind of king, and he was brought down. But he was brought down so that he could be the ground beneath your feet and the refuge that you find lasting security in, even this morning. Guys, 2020 has been hard for all of us. We have had things taken away from us that we normally enjoy. Sports, leisure, entertainment, personal freedoms. We've had family and friends and relationships taken away from us for a time. We've had jobs taken away. We've had our health taken away. We've had our desired life rhythms taken away. We've, we've now had our air quality, our homes, our possessions, our sense of comfort and belonging taken away. In all of this loss, in all of this disruption, in all of this crisis, what should we be thinking about as Christians? Our minds should not run to politics. They should not be running to, to the things that we want to see personally change. It should not be running to judging the world, that kind of idea, right? Our minds should not be running to just simply getting my life back to the way that it was. That's not where my thinking should run. We are be, being given something here. God is wanting to do a work, not merely in the world, but in you. What have we been given? Guys, we're being given an invitation to return to God, to return to God. We have been confronted with our delusion, our vapor of a life. We've been confronted with how we set our hopes on riches and worldly comforts. We foolishly believe that we have the power, but oh my, you guys, let's return to the Lord. Let's return to Him. Let's run to Him as our refuge. Let's confess our sin and get on our faces. Let's go home. Let's not go home to our physical homes. Let's come home to our gracious God. Let's go home to our Savior, Jesus, the one who waited in silence while he prays in the garden, asking the suffering that he knew was coming in the cross to pass him by. Let's go home to the one who poured out his heart to his Father while his Father had forsaken him on the cross. Let's go home to Jesus who died for all of our sin and all of our delusion and all of our vain hopes for all the times that we took refuge in other things only to find out that those things we, put, we found refuge in were just like forts we built in the midst of a hurricane. Right? Jesus trusted in his Father at all times. He lived for you. And yes, he suffered and died for you. So now, by faith, we can run to our great God with poured out hearts and silent souls in the midst of crisis and even in the midst of plenty. And we can experience him as our rock, our fortress, our refuge, and our glory. It's good and it is right 
to want to get out of the crisis we're in. It's good to pray and want the rains to come. Oh my gosh, I do. It's good to pray for the smoke to go away. It's good to pray for everyone we love to be safe, all the first responders. It's good to pray for school to get back to the way that it was. It's good to pray for our nation to become more united. It's, it's good to want things to, in many ways, get back to the way things were. That's good. But it's not good, and it denies the sovereign purposes of God. If, if we want to get out of the crisis as the same person who went into it. Don't waste your 2020. God isn't. He's not wasting it. So let's wait on Him. Let's fill that silence with His promises, knowing who He is. Let's trust Him in all times. And guys, let's return to Him. Let's return to him. God, this morning, I do pray that you would show us the places in our lives that we are maybe white-knuckle gripping, that we're, we're not seeing through the lens of your gospel, through the lens of eternity, God. Uh, we pray, God, that you would send a renewal, a revival to your people uh, in Gresham Bible, in in every church here in East County, in all over Portland, in the West Coast, God, all over the world, God, would you uh, allow us to see this as an opportunity to return to you, to not just want to get through it, God, but to, to want to get through it as transformed people trusting in you. God, would you, would you help us do that? Would you speak to us so clearly? Would you be so merciful and gracious to us, God? God, forgive us for all the times that we we thought of ourselves as significant. Thank you for today helping us see that that, that is but a breath and it's weight. But God, you are our weight. Help us to see that, to, to trust you in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.